This morning we are going to look at three snippets of the text where the angels encounter Zacharias, the priest, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the shepherds. And in all three cases, there is fear that ensues and a message that comes from the heavenly messenger not to fear. So this morning we're going to consider the subject, how is it that fear is finally finished or when is fear finally finished from those verses, verse 13 and 30 of chapter 1 and verse 10 of chapter 2. As we prepare our hearts to consider that this morning, would you bow before his throne with me and ask him to meet us this morning? Our Father and our God, we ask for your grace. We beg that we would see Jesus this morning. That you would help us to understand that fear must flee when Christ is King. Jesus, you are more amazing than we've ever dared to imagine. Give us a glimpse of your glory, we ask it. In your name, amen. Does anyone here remember the show called Fear Factor? You remember the show where the contestants would walk across a high wire or dangle from a rope attached to a flying helicopter or do things like this? I don't know if you can see what that is, but it's a, it's a gentleman, I suppose, lying in a vat of snakes. And I must confess that I initially find it difficult to conceive of anything more terrifying than lying in a vat of snakes. No, thank you. But the scriptures show us someone, they they tell us of something more terrifying than the greatest of our earthly fears, and his name is Lord. It is Yahweh, it's God Almighty, it is holy, it's the great I Am. Indeed, it is the terror of the Lord that is one of our motivations for sharing the gospel, for telling others the good news that Jesus has come. Paul writes, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11. This God is the one of whom the scriptures say, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He's the one of whom the author of Hebrews writes, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Yes, there's indeed something more fearful than lying in a vat of snakes and it's falling into the hands of a living God with our sins still accounted to us. Jonathan Edwards picks up on this theme in Scripture in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, when he writes these words, unconverted men, meaning lost people, people who've heard the gospel, they know that Jesus has come for them and yet have not yet believed. Unconverted people walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. And yet, this morning, we hear the words of the angels, do not be afraid, literally, stop being fearful. How is it? That we can encounter this holy, awesome, terrible, dreadful holiness of God on the one hand. And yet on the other hand, how is it that we cannot be afraid? 
This command of the angels is a command which has given Christians hope down through the ages. That we can encounter God in His nearness and yet not be afraid. How is it that that's possible? Well, the primary answer is that Jesus has come. And He's come not for your condemnation, but for your salvation. He's come that you would receive Him and that He would take your sins in your place. So the answer to the question, how is it that God can come near and we can be rid of our fear of Him? Well, Christ came for you. But we see three applications of that in the text of Scripture as the angels answer the fears of those they encounter. And the first is that if we're going to overcome our fear of the nearness of God, we must understand that God answers our prayer for deliverance. You know the story of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. He's an elderly priest with no son. And he's been called upon for the special honor of giving the offering of incense in the holy place of the temple as part of the preparation for the sacrificial offering. According to Exodus chapter 30, verse 7, the incense was to be offered every morning and evening as part of the special preparation for the offering. And it represented the priest's intercession, his prayer on behalf of all of God's people for God to do something in order to deliver them from their plight and ultimately to deliver them from their sin. Zechariah is determined to make the most of the opportunity. Like Abram, he believed God would one day send a son to deliver his people. In verse 6, the scripture tells us that Zechariah was counted as righteous. He's counted as righteous in the same way that Abram was. He believed that God was going to eventually send the son of promise. Interestingly enough, when Abram receives this covenant promise in Genesis 15 verse 1, God says to him, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Zechariah is looking for this God who would be his shield, who would deliver his people. Here we find this aging priest praying at a time when Herod was king of Judea, but with Rome's permission. So the people of Israel have a range of freedom and yet are not really free. They're, they're not enjoying the day that is promised again and again in Scripture, the day when the people of God would run free in the garden of God all day long with their king. Moses tells us about this day. I will give peace in the land. You'll lie down and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts and the sword will not go through your land. Leviticus 26 and verse 6. So here's Zechariah in the temple praying something like this. God, please cover our sins yet again until you come and remove them forever in your Son. Remember your promises, O God. Give us your Son. Send the shepherd king who will be greater than David. Send the Son who will give eternal rest to your people. Send the Son who will be Ezekiel's seemingly impossible and glorious temple among His people. I know I'm an old man, but perhaps just this once you could send your Son. Maybe you could do it in my lifetime. Maybe you might even allow an old man like me to have a son and somehow be a part of your plan. God, I know you're good on your promises, but it just seems like we've been waiting such a long angel shows up. Gabriel commands Zechariah not to fear the presence of the angel bringing the glory of God. Why? Look at verse 13. 
your prayer has been heard. This God, this almighty, terrible, awesome, fearful, holy, amazing God is also the God who hears the prayers of His people. This is the same God who heard the prayers of the Israelites way back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, when He says, I have seen the oppression of My people who are enslaved in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sorrows. Have you noticed throughout Scripture this pattern? That God delights to take broken people and to send them into His presence and to hear their prayer and bring deliverance. Zechariah isn't the first. Hannah prays for a son. God gives a son, and ultimately that son appoints King David, in whose line a Messiah will come. Zechariah runs into the presence of God, and God shows up and says, Don't be afraid, because I have heard your prayer for deliverance. Frank Thielman, a commentator, writes this, Luke shows his readers that God uses the prayers of His people to advance His saving purposes. It begs the question, does it not, North Roanoke Baptist Church? If God delights to answer the prayers of His people, why aren't we praying? If God delights to bring deliverance to those who are hurting, when will we cry out? What are you praying for? Have you asked God to deliver you? Are you asking God to lead you to a level of trust and dependence that confounds the world and reaches the nations? Here's the deal, North Roanoke. God is in the business of answering prayers like that. Let's start praying like that. And let's watch fear flee. Here's a prayer that as I was meditating on the fact that we so often read about prayer and meet about prayer and talk about prayer and cease To pray, here's a prayer that God gave me as I was preparing this message. Dear God, do something in my life, in my family, in our church, and throughout this valley that exceeds my greatest expectations. Do you believe God can exceed your expectations? Do you believe that whatever it is that you can conceive of God doing in this valley, that He can do more than that? God, bring people, families, and communities into right relationship with you. Deliver them from sin and sadness. Grow them up in the gospel. We ask this with boldness and confidence in the accomplished work of Jesus. We ask it for the glory of Christ. We ask it in the authority and name of our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that to Him belongs the victory. Amen. What if we began to pray like that? What if we allowed God to take His nearness and our fear of His presence and allowed us to understand that He's come near for our deliverance and we began to pray that He would move and work and use a people like us? I don't know all that might happen, but but here's here's a picture of what might happen. Marriages will be mended. Addictions will be annihilated. People who've been attending for church church for years and never understood the joy of generous giving will begin to give lavishly and generously for the progress of the gospel in our city. City leaders will come and they will beg us for our help. They will give us access to places we've never thought possible. Atheists will become tomorrow's theologians. People who've abandoned the church will return and find love and grace in 
Christ. People who don't look like most of us here will begin to come and plant their lives here and they will get delivered from their sin. And if we doubt that this is what God can do in Christ, look at verses 67 to 79. You know the story. Zacharias doubts. He loses his speech for nine months. The Spirit comes upon him. He writes his son's name, John, who is the forerunner of Jesus. So his prayer is answered. He does get a son who is a part of the story of getting the Gospel and Jesus to others. But look what God has done in Christ. The Spirit revisits Zechariah. Zechariah can speak again. And Zechariah tells us he has visited his people, redeemed his people, raised up a horn of salvation in David's house, remembered his covenant, given us the knowledge of salvation, brought light to those who sit in darkness, and get this, delivered us to serve him without fear. So first, we must understand that God answers our prayer for deliverance if we're going to be those who live without fear. But secondly, we must find and embrace God's grace. We must find God's grace. In verse 28 of chapter 1, Gabriel addresses Mary as one who's been given favor, or literally, the word is grace. The term means to be shown a special kindness, or to be granted a special acceptance. It signifies God's gracious choice of someone through whom God does something special. Notice, dear brother, dear sister, that Mary is given grace. She's not the bestower of grace, as some traditions might hold. The grace that she has is a grace that has been received by God. The Word is written in such a way that it communicates to us that she had nothing to do with getting it, And that once she gets this grace, that it can never leave. It has been forever given and granted by God, and it's been given irreversibly. And what is this favor that she receives? Look at verse 28. The favor she receives is the Lord with you. Uh, The word is there is not actually in the text. Literally, the words are Lord with you. Now, to be sure, it means the Lord is with you. But there's something powerful about considering the fact this grace that we have is God with us. The Lord with you. North Roanoke, God chose Mary to bring Christ to the world. He gave her the special favor of bringing Christ to the world. And guess what? He's given us that same grace. By His Spirit, when He transforms us and changes us and allows Christ to dwell with us, we are commissioned as those agents of His special favor to bring Christ to the world who so desperately needs Him. But look what happens to Mary. She gets this message of the special favor of God and you think she'd go, Yippee! I'm graced. But no. It tells us she was troubled at his saying. She was deeply perplexed by this saying. It means that she's in a state of deep, troubling, pondering, complexity, perplexity. Her mind is going a million different directions. Questions are arising. And the thing that causes her to have such trouble is the very message that is going to deliver her. Can you imagine what she's thinking? Uh, Why me? 
There's no way I could ever live up to this, God. Couldn't you have picked someone else? What if I can't pull this off? This is going to take something more than what I can give. And then Gabriel shows up and says, stop being afraid. And why is it that she's supposed to stop being afraid? Because of the very grace that she's heard about. The grace that God gives is not something that he gives to take away. It's not something that he gives and then it evaporates. It's not something that he gives and suddenly it leaves. God gives his grace. And when he gives his grace, he doesn't take it back. He gives grace upon grace upon grace. So that we might persist in the work to which he has called us. Look at verse 30. The angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found grace in God or with God. The word found there in the Greek, is the root word for the word that we call Eureka. And I'm sure you all recall that when the gold travelers went across to California and discovered gold, they said Eureka. And the reason they said Eureka is because centuries earlier, Archimedes had been asked by the king a question about his crown, which was supposedly made of pure gold, but he had his doubts. And the king said, I want to know if they've slipped in some silver and other lighter weight metals into this crown. And Archimedes says, well, I've got a problem. There's only one way to figure that out. I've got to melt down your crown. And the king says, well, that's not going to work. So he figures out something called water displacement and discovers that greater amounts of water are displaced by heavier metals. And he figures out a way to determine if the entire crown is actually made of pure gold. And when he discovers this principle, he, he exclaims, tradition holds, Eureka! Well, Mary has discovered, she has found, it has been given to her by God, something greater than even pure gold. She has discovered the grace of God, and it's a grace that God will never remove from her. You see, the grace that initially leads her to fear is actually the grace that will sustain her in trust. Even though a sword pierce her own soul, God will graciously sustain her and equip her for all He wants to accomplish. North Roanoke, let me let you in on a little secret this morning. This, this sermon is, if it's not for any of you, it's for me. Uh, because in Christ, I have been graced not only with His salvation and with His commission to be a missionary, just as all of you have been commissioned in Christ, but I've been called to be your pastor. And that is a, a sober calling. It's a calling that leads me to ponder and to question just like Mary did. I've got, got to confess to you, I find myself going back and forth between great confidence because of this grace I've received and then great fear. And I've got to look at the text and I've got to be reminded that God gives grace not to take it away, not to trip us up, not because of what we offer, but because of what God wants to do. My hope and your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. How do we know this? Look at what follows in verse 31 and following. The promised son comes. His name is salvation. He's not just Mary's son. He's son of the highest in verse 32. He's the long-awaited eternal king who sits on David's throne in verse 33. And get this over in verse 37. He is the one who shows us nothing is impossible with 
God, not even the salvation of a wretched sinner like me. But lastly, if we're going to overcome our fear of the nearness of God, not only must we understand He answers our prayers for deliverance, not only must we understand that He gives grace, not just a grace that evaporates, but a sustaining grace for all of life's challenges. Lastly, we must receive the gospel of great joy. We find this in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 2. The shepherds are given a message by the angels and they are greatly afraid. And then in verse 10, the angel says the exact same thing Stop being afraid. Why? I bring you good tidings of what? Great joy. North Roanoke, do you have joy this morning? If we have the gospel, we have the message of true joy. There's there's no other place where you find real joy. And I've got to confess to you that after spending 10 years at seminary, which was a wonderful, marvelous experience, there is a danger in getting so close to the text that you miss the joy of the gospel. That we dive so much into the particulars of the gospel that we forget the joy of the gospel. So some people who talk about the gospel talk about it like they're reading a technical manual. The, the Son of God was born so He could die for me. Two plus two is four. Three plus three is six. There's no difference. I, I had my... Shoulder. I had an MRI of my shoulder just a few months ago. What I learned was it's not very wise to take a stress ball and to throw it as hard as you can at a target hundreds of times over. Because if you do that, you can throw your shoulder out. Did you know that? I should have known that. But I was stubborn and playing a fun game and just about... I thought, destroyed my shoulder. So I go to the doctor, get an MRI, and the doctor is reading the results of my MRI. And I don't know exactly what he said, but it sounded something like this. Mr. Palmer, the MRI has revealed that the bilateral striation of the ligamentary thingamadoo is precisely uncompromised in the transverse position. That's great, doc. What does that mean? I just want to know if I'm going to be all right. Oh, yeah, 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 you're going to be great. You're going to be throwing a ball in no time. Well, praise God. But isn't that how we can be with the gospel? Yes, it's right, and it's good to dive into the gospel. And we're going to go deep here at North Roanoke Baptist Church. We're going to plumb the depths of the scripture, but we are not going to lose hold of the fact that the gospel is a message of great joy. We're going to tell this city that the gospel is a message of great joy. We're going to live our lives on fire for Christ, knowing that the gospel is a message of great joy. We're going to know that God has come near to us, not for our condemnation, but to deliver us, to save us, to rescue us, to reconcile us, and to make us his own possession so that when he comes near, we do not have to fear. God has made me alive in Christ whom he sent for me. I am alive. I'm alive. Hallelujah. I'm alive. We've got to get this, North Roanoke. The message of the gospel is a message of great joy. 
So let us this morning understand that God has come near for our good and that this changes everything. You know, we get a lot of do not fears in the Scripture far after the Gospels. Paul in Philippians 1, 27 and 28 tells us, in the face of people who want to harm us or undermine us or question our motives, do not fear. Peter in 1 Peter 3.14, in the face of persecution, people wanting to kill you for your faith, do not fear. Jesus in Matthew 10.28, in the face of physical death, if you've been rescued from the second death, don't worry about physical death. Do not fear. So to summarize this this morning, we, we've got to understand we don't need to fear the nearness of God if we understand and receive the person and the purpose of His coming. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and has some questions. You know the story of Nick at night. Where he comes at nighttime, the teacher of the law, and begins to ask Jesus some questions. And Jesus beginning to respond to him, telling him, you've got to be born from above. You've got to be given new life by God. And he says in verse 16, God so loved the world... He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God has come near to us for the purpose of life. He goes on. God did not send His Son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but He who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John goes on to tell us that Jesus is the light and he does not come for condemnation. But the whole point is this. If you don't receive the light, his very holiness and presence and glory demands condemnation. So if you want to move from the fear and the terror of the Lord to the acceptance of God, you must receive the one who's come for you, not to condemn you, but to bless you with His grace and to deliver you from your greatest fears and to give you Himself. Around Valentine's Day of this year, 21 Egyptian Christians refused to deny their faith in Jesus. And they were beheaded on video by people acting in the name of the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. What has seldom been reported since that time is that their martyrdom has led to a revival and that thousands have come to a saving knowledge of Christ because in the face of their greatest fear, they had no fear. Here's what a Christian who witnessed these tragic events had to say about what's taking place in the Middle East. He says this, The God who raised Jesus from the dead will raise them also, whose testimony brought many to the truth of Christ. Do you want hope? North Roanoke Baptist Church. Do you want joy? North Roanoke Baptist Church. Do you want to live fearlessly in the face of the fears that this world affords and brings? Then remember that we serve a God who answers our prayer for deliverance. We serve a God who has especially graced us in giving us His Son. And we serve a God who's given us, even in the face of death, a gospel of great joy. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, 
Would you grant us your grace to live fearlessly? Would you grant us your grace to live in awe of your presence and your glory? But to not be troubled by the things of this world. Lord Jesus, if any be here and be apart from you, not yet knowing your grace, I pray today would be the day of salvation, that they would come and trust in you and find hope and joy everlasting. Thank you, Father, for sending the Son. Thank you, Son, for coming. And thank you, Spirit, for drawing men and women to yourself. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if you're from out of town and you've moved to North Roanoke, we invite you to join us to become partners with us in ministry. If you have not yet trusted Christ, if, you, if Christ were to come today and His presence would mean condemnation for you, understand that He has come near even this day for your deliverance. We invite you to come and trust Christ today.